one. Hi everybody, I'm Wong Xu, and I know this is going to be a special time we get to to have as a special guest. I'm going to have Patricia introduce her. Go ahead, Patricia. Oh boy, this is great. We are talking tonight with Tony Tennille, who is, and you'll recognize her name, but also in a different context, Captain Tennille. Um, she is with us from Florida. We're holding down the East Coast tonight. Everybody calls <laughs> in from California. So I'm just delighted that we've got two people over here on this side. It is April 23rd, 2016, and we are not live. So we're not going to be taking phone calls. I get Tony all to myself. <laughs> and I love it. Tony has written a book, Tony Tennille, a memoir. Not only is it in print, but it is in audio. And Tony, that is very special for our audience because we have so many visibly or visually impaired. I I get mixed up with my words, visually impaired listeners on this station. So this is just a gift for them. Welcome, Tony, to Neil. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you tonight. Oh, my gosh. Are we happy that you're here? And we've got a birthday coming up. Happy birthday. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You're reminding me of that, right? Oh, my God. Well, listen, you know, you've been so open with everything. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, May May 8th, 8th, that's my birthday. May 8th, yes. So here is a list of accomplishments and credits, and I know it's not complete, Tony, so maybe you could help me with this. We've got singer, classical musician, composer, songwriter, um, now you're a writer, of course, TV talk and music show, TV with Captain and Tennille, Captain and Tennille show. Um, <laughs> you did auditions for a radio commercial that I want to make sure we talk about. Yes, yes. Um, and you did voiceover work for a Casper cartoon special. I did, I did. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just so fun, having such fun finding these things. Your 1975 Grammy Award, Love Will Keep Us Together, five albums that were gold or platinum on the road with Victor Victoria. And I learned today, and you have to correct me if this is, if this is a little off, you did two radio shows on mutual radio in 1980. Is that correct? You know, I'm trying to remember if I did. I, I think I did. Were they, were they, um, were they like a plays, like small plays? One was a Western that you sang, yeah. and one with a, a mystery. Yeah, I remember. It, oh, my. And we have the recording, so if you ever want them, Tony, we can send them to you. And I think it was produced by Elliot Lewis, if that might ring a bell. And uh, Oh, gosh, I would love to have those. So definitely, I'll, I'll, I'll get her hollering after, the, and we'll send the links and her forward more to you. So. Oh, that's great. Thank you so no much, Walden. No problem. I'm so glad you have them, Walden. I tried everywhere, and Tony's name kept coming up with the show, and nobody had it. They stopped it in 1979. Well, so. yeah. all, when we were promoting it last night, all the fans said, hey, don't forget to ask Tony about this radio, and I, I didn't remember it, so I know we got it because we got such a, a large archive, so we'll, we'll make sure Tony gets a copy of them. That'll, that'll be great because I remember I absolutely loved doing it. It was just more fun, and I wish we had more stuff like that now because that's the kind of thing I'd like to do. You know, one of the things you did in an old radio name it was with Les Tremaine, who was the first night on radio, and you did the mystery with him. He was one of your supporting actors. So. That's right. 
That's right. I remember. Oh, my gosh. That was fun. And we're having fun already, and we've just gotten started. This is great. And Walden, you're going to send me the links as well because I couldn't find them, and I'm so disappointed. Okay. Well, so we'll, we'll just get everybody on board with this. I have to take care of all the ladies in my life tonight. We'll be good. Okay. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me what I would like to do, if it's all right with you, is start with your growing up years and then work into your career and your career with Daryl Dragon, who was known as captain and you can tell us how he got that name as well now you grew up in montgomery alabama i did mm-hmm. and it was a very pointed and emphatic segregation time oh definitely um we we were supposed to be the the laws were supposed to be separate but equal and they were definitely separate but far from equal but, of course, when, when Jane and I were little, I was born in 1940. She was born in 1942. She's the sister closest in age to me of the, of mm-hmm. the three. Um, and uh, we, we just we didn't understand that the life we were living was any different than most other people did. I would call our family upper middle class, probably. And uh, we had uh, black people that, uh, that we hired to be a cook or a nanny and that sort of thing. One of them, Denny, was with us for all the way through the time that Melissa was born, um, and we adored her. But, and I remember things like um, uh, whites only water fountains, coloreds only, bathrooms separate. Um, I remember p- particularly uh, Denny, the, the, the nanny that we had for so many years. Denny Johnson was a college graduate. She had graduated from one of the Negro colleges uh, at that time. And I remember even when I was little wondering why she was, you know, babysitting us rather than doing something else with her college degree. Mm-hmm. But, but one of the things I do remember is that uh, uh, she would take me and Jane to Oak Park, which is still there in Montgomery. And it was a, a park where everybody went and you had birthdays there and it was a lot of fun. And um Denny would take us on the bus from our house to Oak Park. And we'd get on the bus, and she'd pay the driver, and she'd get us all seated up in the front, and then she'd go to the back of the bus. And Jane and I didn't want to be away from her. We wanted to be with her. So we would get up and go back to the back of the bus to sit with Denny. And she would say, no, 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 you have to go back up to the front. And we'd say, why, why, we want to be with you. And she'd say, very quietly, that's just the way things are, and I just go back up to the front. And, uh, and that I remember very clearly. And then I remember uh, Jane told me a wonderful story where she was out driving in Montgomery with Daddy, um, and um, they pulled up to a stoplight, and there was a car next to them, and Daddy looked over and he said to Jane, do you know who that is in that car? And Jane looked over and said, no. And he said, that's Dr. Martin Luther King. And Jane never, ever forgot that. Um, at the time uh, when we were really young, uh, you know, we, I started out, you know, in the fifth 40s, you know, I was up to age 10. And then I went through high school, um, you know, up to when I, when I went to Auburn in 1959. And after that is when things really, really, really started happening. 
um, with the bus boycott with Rosa Parks. And I was in Auburn at the time and, and missed a lot of that. But as I grew older, I was beginning to see that things weren't right. And my parents kept us very, um, they kept a lot of it from us. Uh, I think they did that because they themselves knew kind of the ugliness of the situation and they protected us from that. But I remember we were members of the Montgomery Country Club and we would go on Sundays to have a Sunday dinner there. And we were waited on by a staff of black waiters in white starched jackets and bow ties. And that's, you know, I hate to say it because it sounds so awful, but that's just the way it was then. Mm -hmm. Just like Denny said. Just like Denny said. And she was, you know, the wonderful thing that happened with Denny that I was so glad for. I have to go back and say that Denny used to be our our best audience of one when mother and daddy would go out denny would always stay with us and jane and i would put on a show for denny and <laughs> we'd put some music on and, you know i remember we put on a, a recording of uh debussy's gollywog's cakewalk uh, the children's suite and we'd go out there and we'd dance and make up things we didn't know what we were doing and denny would just applaud and applaud and say how wonderful it was so she was, you know, my and our first audience of, of our, you know, adored us, uh, of one, our audience of one. And then later on, years later, when Daryl and I, um, you know, had all of our success and we were performing in, uh, in I believe it was Chicago, because Denny had moved there by that time to live with her daughter. And um, we invited her uh, to come and, um, and uh watch one of our shows, the Captain and Tennille show. We got her. We had a limousine, pick her up, take her to the front uh, front row, tickets in the front row to watch uh, to watch the show. And then afterwards, uh, she came backstage. And uh, I will never forget what that felt like to have Denny there to see us when we finally had some success, Daryl and I did. Uh, it was very, very special, and I've never forgotten it. You had an audience of more than one that night. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> you did. And it must have been an extraordinary experience for her as well. You know, I think it was. Denny was very quiet. Um, she didn't often express her own feelings, but I'll tell you one thing I knew about her is that she loved our family. She loved my dad. She loved my mom. And she loved my sisters. And like I say, she was with us until Melissa, the youngest, was born and with us for quite a while until she, until she left to go live with her, with her, uh, her daughter. Mm-hmm. What, a, what, a, what a great experience for you and your sisters to have had, especially in that time in our history. Absolutely. We're talking, we're, we learned sorry, so much from that time. And yeah. you know, my parents were um, were what you would call you know pretty liberal white white family for that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we were taught always to be respectful, never to use you know bad language or the N word, which was never spoken in our house, um, and to treat everybody the same way. And somehow, with our parents' help, we managed to come out of that uh, that kind of upbringing with respect and understanding. 
which is remarkable, especially for the times. And I, I don't want to concentrate on this, Tony, because we have so much to cover. Sure. But you've spoken so eloquently about, and in the book as well, about the people in your life and the black people who influenced you and the people who you had fun with. How old were you when you and Jane in particular got your arms around what segregation really meant? I would say when we were about 15, 14, 15, we're, we're about 20 months apart, Jane and I are. Mm-hmm. And that's when we began to understand what was going on. Um, at the time, um, we didn't really know what to do about it. You know, we just knew that it was wrong and it was going on, but we didn't understand what we could do. Um, and it was only, and then, of course, when I went up to Auburn uh, and went to school there for two years, uh, that was totally white. There were the first black person, uh, black student came to Auburn, I believe it was in 1962. So, you know, up there in Auburn, away from Montgomery, we were kind of away from all of the uh, the things that were beginning to happen yeah. at that time. Yeah. Interesting. We're talking with Tony Tennille. Everybody in our audience knows who you are, Tony. And Tony has written a book, Tony Tennille, a memoir. Tony, tell people, please, how they can get your book and the treat that you have also narrated it. Well, first I want to say that I didn't do this book by myself. I would never have done it without my niece, Caroline Tennille St. Clair, who is Jane's youngest daughter. Uh, Caroline is a, just a fine writer. I'm, I'm very good at saying this happened. And I can, you know, describe what happened when we were at the White House or when I was out with the Beach Boys and so forth. But Caroline has the gift of putting you right into the scene. She just knows how to make the reader be there. And that's a gift that I don't have. And she also uh, took us, threaded, threaded my life through what was happening historically at the time in the country. Uh, and, of course, we were there during the 70s for the crazy music scene that was going on uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, I have to give her credit. But to, to find it, um, you, can, um, you can go to barnesandnoble.com. You can go to amazon.com. Uh, you can go into any Barnes & Noble store. I know they're carrying it. Um, I'm not sure how many other of the smaller bookstores are carrying it right now. You also should be able to find it at your local library, if not now within a couple of weeks. Um, and then the audio book, which I read, which I must say was a, a wonderful experience for me um, because I read it um, from the very beginning and kind of went back over my life as I was reading it. Uh, as I was talking it and telling people what it was like, uh, I was going through it emotionally, all the things that, that happened to me. And you can find that on Amazon Audible Audio. Uh, actually, all you have to do is just put in uh, um, Tony Tennille, a memoir, and it'll go to all the various forms you can find it in. That's great. I'm so glad it's got so many places that people can tap into, and it's not just one place, and uh, this is great. Oh, uh, no, Barnes and Noble. we're in our second printing, so I'm kind of excited about it. I read that. I am so excited for you that the first one just disappeared, yeah, and you're in the great. second printing now. That That is so great. But the Audible is permanent. I mean, you, you don't have to wait for an edition to show up for that, and I'm I'm just so delighted that you were the person 
who did the audio. Because so, you lend, it, you lend it, so much to it. I've listened to some samples. Oh, it's really so great. Good. Well, you know, it's my story, and it's in my voice. So it had to be me. I, I can't imagine anyone yeah. else reading it with with the with the visceral understanding of mm-hmm. my life that I have of my life. Yes, yes. And I Andy. kind of hoped with the audio book that people would feel the same things that I was feeling as I was yes. as I was remembering yes. and reading. And your voice is in there. It's in there. <laughs> we know your voice, and it's there. Tony, I'd like to what happened to your Alabama accent? Well, you know, it uh, it depends. If I go, <laughs> there's a funny thing that happens. Uh, I remember when I, w- I would be on the road with with Daryl or, or, or out doing a symphony concert or something like that in another uh, southern town, uh, and my musicians would always laugh at me because the minute I got into a southern state and I went on stage, you know, I would say, oh, it's just so great to be back here in Tennessee, and it would just come <laughs> right back. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, when I moved to California, I thought, okay, let me try to neutralize my accent a little bit so I can, you know, depending on what I end up doing, if I'm uh-huh. going to try for acting or whatever, um, I can go into a, to a neutral voice and then I can do other accents if I, if I need to and I can use my southern accent if I need to. So that's kind of what happened. Well, I think <laughs> yeah. anyone who can erase part of their, their uh, verbal presentation it's i'm really impressed i'm from new york i want people to say the same thing about me tell me about auburn university you spent two years there and i know that your family had some really challenging times and you spent two years at auburn and then moved on to other things can we talk about that for a little bit absolutely what would you where would you like me to start i would like you to start when you wound up at auburn and you can include the, the other knights in there because they did pop up in your life later on. Um, but what happened at the end of those two years as well? Well, at the time that I, that I was, uh, had finished high school and was going to Auburn, um, my family, my father, now first of all, let me go back and say he was a big band singer when he was in his 20s. He sang with Bob Crosby and his Bobcats, which was a very famous big band at the time. And Daddy was on his way to having a wonderful career as a as a vocalist for the various big bands. He was he was handsome, blonde, blue eyed, charming, and had a beautiful beautiful tenor voice. But his father, uh, my grandfather, passed away very young, and. Uh, and his mother had to take over the family furniture store, which had been founded in 1888. It had been in Montgomery that long. And so Daddy had to go uh, go back off the road, go home, and take care of the furniture business. The thing was that Daddy was a, a brilliant musician, wonderful singer, but he had really not a very good business head. And uh, and he didn't have his heart in it. He he wasn't interested in furniture. He wanted to be back out on the road again, singing. Um, and so um, and so he uh, uh, lost. I think he lost heart at that point and wasn't really paying that much attention. And the business began to fail. 
uh, mother then was able to, she was offered a job at WSFA-TV in Montgomery um, doing her own talk show. Uh, she called it the guest room, and she used her maiden name, Catherine Wright, the, the guest room. And um, that kept the family going. That kept some money going for, for a while. But eventually it was very obvious that I could not continue at Auburn. There was just no money. Um, and uh, so when, when my family moved to California, as soon as I finished my uh, my sophomore year, I flew out to California to to be with them and uh, kind of fell in love with California. And uh, when the time came to go back, I couldn't go back anyway because we didn't have the finances to keep me there in school. Yeah. And what did you do then? Well, um, I uh, finished up, you know, my sophomore year at Auburn, and then I got on a plane and I flew to California. And I remember when we were landing in uh, in L.A. And you remember, I lived in Alabama all my life. I had never seen anything <laughs> right. like this. I looked out of the plane window. It was nighttime. And I just saw lights forever. And I just couldn't imagine what was down there below me. It looked like the lights went on forever. And then there was blackness which was the ocean at night, the Pacific Ocean, boom. And um, it was just like a magical thing to me. But I moved in with my, uh, with my mother and father and my sisters uh, in a little place on Balboa Peninsula that we rented and uh, went to work for North American Aviation Autonetics Division. Uh, Daddy had gotten a job working there. Uh, and he got me and Jane summer jobs uh, doing, you know, clerk-type work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how we made some money while we were trying to find our place in uh, in California. You met Daryl Dragon, captain, as yes. many people know him, according to the information I have, in 1971. Does that sound right? Yes, that sounds very right, yeah, 1970. Tell me, tell me about the meeting and what created magic for you. Well, it, it goes back to South Coast Repertory Theater, which I had done theater all my life, and even while I was working at North American, you know, I always had a theater group somewhere that I could do things with because I, I wanted to be creative in some way, and that's what I loved to do. So I I was doing all of that and working at North American. And um, now, where am I going? Because I can't remember. I got off track a little bit. Well, yeah, I I started asking about the meeting, your first meeting meeting. with Daryl. And while I was at at, uh, uh, South Coast Rep, I wrote a musical with one of the directors there. His name was uh, Ron Thronson. He had written the the book and the lyrics for a musical uh, that was about ecology called Mother Earth. And he asked me if I could write music, set the lyrics that he wrote to to music. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, yeah, you know, I'd only written a couple of songs by, you know, at that time. But I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll do it. And uh, it, it, it turned out to be really easy for me. I just sat down with those lyrics and, and wrote out the music, and it became the show Mother Earth, which we premiered at South Coast Repertory Theater um, 
1969, I believe, 1970, right around 1969, 1970. And um, at the night we premiered it down there, in South, well, by the way, South Coast Repertory Theater went on to become a Tony Award-winning regional theater. In, but at that time, it was run out of basically a storefront. In fact, Tony, I live here in Costa Mesa, so you know where I'm at with South Coast Repertory and all here in our backyard. Absolutely, and can you believe the gorgeous <laughs> theater they have now? Oh, I know, I know. And you were talking about you, you were talking about uh, Balboa Point. You're the, the whole remodeling that. The next time you come out, you'll just shake your head what they're doing with this whole area again. Oh, I'd love to see. Oh. I'd love to see. It's been a long time now. My sister lives in Newport Beach. Okay, yeah. But I haven't actually been down there on the peninsula or out. You know, on Balboa Island, yeah. where I used to have a little apartment there yeah. when I was young and first moved out there. I haven't been down there in a long time. She lives up on the bluff, oh. overlooked. Oh, yeah. 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 So anyway, at that time, South Coast Rep was just run out of a storefront. But the night we premiered Mother Earth, we had the L.A. Times, we had the Orange County Register, we had Variety and Hollywood Reporter critics there, and they all gave it rave reviews. So what happened was, here we were, Ron and I, who really didn't know anything about professional theater, we just did it for the love of it, and all these people, you know, purported directors, producers, came down and started, you know, talking to us about wanting to put on the show. And uh, this one guy, um, he came up and he said, he came down and he said, I can get this show to Broadway. You know, I know I can get it to Broadway. Just sign here. Well, I learned the biggest lesson I've learned in my whole career right then, and thank God I learned it then instead of later, because Ron and I didn't have an attorney. We just looked over the contract and went, okay. <laughs> we thought this is what, you, you know, everybody did. Sure. And it turned out that we signed away creative control to this guy. His name was Ray Golden. And... um you know, he promptly started wanting to make changes to what we were doing. We had written what we thought was a very lovely and hopeful and and uh, meaningful, uh, uh, you know, play about saving the earth because at th that time people were starting to think about ecology and the things we were doing that were wrong for the earth. Mm -hmm. He wanted to sex it up, I guess. He wanted the the gals in the chorus to wear hot pants. Oh, boy. Stuff like, I mean, he just turned it into something it wasn't. I just hated it. And when we'd say, I don't want, I'd say to him, and Ron would say, no, we don't want to do that. He'd say, you can't stop me. I have creative control. See, it says right here. So that was just a heartbreak for me. But anyway, that's a backstory. Now, we did the first professional production of it in San Francisco. Um, and it was in 1971 at the Marines Memorial Theater. And um, uh, we needed a new keyboard player after that run because we were going to take it down to Los Angeles. And uh, the keyboard player we had in San Francisco couldn't go with us. So somebody recommended a guy who had been with the Beach Boys as a backup musician for, you know, five, six years. And the Beach Boys were taking some time off the road and he was available. So um, I sent down uh, to him a, uh, a recording of the songs I had written with me singing them, and uh, he flew up to audition for me. 
and um, I, I walked into the Marines Memorial, the theater of the lobby, uh, the lobby of the theater, uh, the day I was supposed to audition him, and he was sitting there. He was skinny as a rail because he was totally into macrobiotic diet at that time, and he was all dressed in black. Everything was black, and he was kind of slumped down on on one of the seats there with his arms crossed, and I just thought, wow, this is, I've never seen a man quite like this, uh, he, and he had, he had dark glasses on, the whole thing. And uh, so then um, we, we went over to the piano, we went into the theater, into the piano, and he started playing through the score, and I could see that he was terrific, he knew exactly what he was doing. But then he made me laugh, because sometimes in the middle of playing something, he'd throw another song in there, like a little musical joke that he'd throw in, and then he'd go right back to the, what he was supposed to be doing. And I thought, you know, this guy has a, an interesting sense of humor. And I thought something, something might be going on, at least with me. Um, he was, you know, I couldn't tell anything that was going on with him. Um, but, uh, of course, then that later, uh, when Mother Earth, at least I left Mother Earth, um, it went on uh, without me, with all the changes that this man had made. But um, uh, Daryl and I started working in clubs, and then when the Beach Boys were ready to go back on the road, out on the road, he said, look, they need a keyboard player. Um, and uh, um, Carl Wilson called me and said, uh, can you come and substitute for their regular guy who's taking a year off to, uh, to go get his college degree, finish his degree? And, uh, and I said, oh, wow. And he said, well, um, I told him I recommended you. And I said, but Daryl, I'm a girl. He said, that doesn't care. Carl doesn't care. I told him you could do it, and he, you know, he knows that I know what I'm talking about. So I actually went on the road with the Beach Boys, uh, and they had never heard me play until the sound check for the first concert in Binghamton, New York, and they went strictly on Daryl's word. So that was how I got my first experience playing in a rock band on stage, which was kind of amazing when I realized I looked back to my 10 years of classical piano with Miss Lily Byron Gill, my wonderful piano teacher, and there I was playing Beach Boy tunes. It was pretty fun. You just answered my question about the relationship between the Beach Boys and the kind of music you were doing there and your classical background. Well, you know, the great thing about the classical background, well, first of all, it, it you know, it, it it gives you good um, technique, although I was pretty lazy and I didn't practice as much as I should have. I, I mostly would just go through the, through the classical books. I was a good sight reader, and I would just go through and, and read stuff and just play for fun. And then, of course, I'd go back and Miss Gill would say, you need to go back to your scales. You, need, you know, okay. <laughs> but the great thing was that I learned to read music, which was a huge, huge help to me in my later career. And also when I was working with the Beach Boys, because it was written out what I was going to play. And I was able to sit down and sight read it. And Daryl took me through the songs that I'd need for the two weeks before we left to go on tour. So I was prepared um, when I went there, but I was still kind of apprehensive uh, about what they would think. I mean, I knew Carl was all right with it. You know, he was the uh, Brian Wilson's middle brother, and then there was Dennis, mm -hmm. who was the youngest brother. Um, but I wasn't sure how the rest of the band would take to having a woman on stage with the Beach Boys. But once they knew I could play and I could read music and I was actually a musician, um, they were fine with it. 
So uh, the classical training was absolutely uh, an essential to the rest of my career. So it was a good foundation. Absolutely, absolutely. And then when I was at Auburn and I sang with the Auburn Knights Big Band, which my father had been the first vocalist with that band when he was in college there, um, the guys there taught me to write lead sheets. And lead sheets are basically just uh, you write out the melody, and then instead of writing all the notes for the chords and accompaniment, you write chord symbols, chord changes. So uh-huh. you can play along and you can improvise if, if, you know, if that's what you like to do. But that simplifies when I was writing my own songs. I could just sit down and write down the chord changes instead of having to write out the whole piano part. Phew. Well, you're taking my breath away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, another funny thing was they never even knew I could sing, the Beach Boys. They didn't hire me for that. Uh, They hired me to play play acoustic piano. But, you know, eventually uh, one or the other of them would get laryngitis or have trouble with their voice, and they'd say, well, can you sing this part? And I'd say, yeah. (laughs) So here I'm singing, you know, with Little Deuce Coop and Barbara Ann and all those things. It was kind of fun. Very fun. You had an extraordinary, I'll, I'll call it um, a stratum. <laughs> That's the best I can come up with. Oh. You had an extraordinary stratum between uh, the Beach Boys and getting married and getting into different parts of your life. So I'm going to ask you, why did you write the book and give me the preliminaries to your marriage? Okay. Let's see. I'm going to try to condense it because it, you know, it took a long time to write it. To me, it's it's very nuanced and subtle in many ways, and I was hoping to write it so people would understand. Uh, why? Let's see. Why did I write it? Well, let's see. Or should I start with the marriage? Well, I was I was totally by this time. By the time we were out with the Beach Boys, totally enamored of Daryl. Um, I was falling in love with him. Um, I had no idea how he felt about me, except I did know he thought I was a, a he thought I was a great singer and a really fine songwriter and, and musician. That I knew, um, but I didn't sense that he was feeling about me like I was feeling about him. And um, the way I could express how I felt about him was writing songs. Uh, one of the first ones I wrote for him was a song called The Way I Want to Touch You, which actually became our second million-selling single. Um, and, uh, you know, another song later on, Do That to Me One More Time, which became um, a number one single for us. But this is how I kind of was trying to tell Daryl how I felt about him uh, with being not wanting to just say it. Uh, the funny thing was, years later, I found out that he never listened to the lyrics. <laughs> he he was only a music guy, so he he said, you know, I never read those lyrics. And I went, well, okay. But um, we we started working together in clubs in between Beach Boy tours, and um, we 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 finally got ourselves a record deal. I'm trying to condense this down. Uh, with A&M Records, and um, they were terrific because uh, we we chose them. Actually, we had our choice of several labels, finally, after years of working in clubs. 
we finally had our choice of labels, and we chose A&M because they were the only one who would allow us to produce our own first album without the assistance of a staff producer. And wow. Carol and I both knew that our sound was Daryl's producing and keyboards, and my voice, of course. But it was his producing that made our records kind of pop out of the radio. He just knew how to do that. And A&M said, if you do your first album and it's successful, then you can go on from then on, and you can do all of them on your own. If it's not successful, then we'll have a staff producer work with you. So we thought that was fair. We thought it was fair. And, of course, it turned out we never needed the staff producer because the first album was so successful. But <clears throat> we had our first hit uh, in 75 with Love Will Keep Us Together. And at that point, uh, Daryl and I were living together. And we were not married. We were living together. But people thought we were married. And A&M... Uh, wanted to keep that thought out there. Um, so they, without our knowing it, um, had their publicity department put out a, a statement that Daryl and I had been married on Valentine's Day, uh, which, which we hadn't. We weren't married at all. And then we, did, we only knew about it when we started getting letters from fans who said, Oh, you were married on Valentine's Day. Oh, that's so sweet. And then they started sending us, you know, pillows embroidered with our wedding date and all that. And, and nobody told you this ahead of time. No, they just did it. <laughs> and and so there we were living together, not married. And, of course, I, I, I would have gone for it if he'd asked me, but he didn't. Um, we, you know, he, we, I just still at that time, although we were living together, could not figure out him. And of course, as you read in the book, it took me a long time. And before I realized I was never, ever going to figure him out. But um, our accountant <laughs> told us that uh, we would do a lot better with our taxes if we were married. And we, you know, we were making a, quite a bit of money at that time. And so we did. We got married. Um, but we got married um, kind of under the radar. And that, at that time, we had not, we didn't have our own television show yet. We'd, we'd guessed it on a few shows, but we weren't that recognizable yet. So what we did was uh, fly up to um, northern Nevada, and then from there we drove to Virginia City, Nevada, uh, to get married uh, just quietly. And uh, what we didn't realize was that the day we had chosen was Veterans Day, and all of the public offices were closed. The government offices were closed. Mm -hmm. So we're up there in Virginia City going, oh, my, what are we going to do? Well, what we found a clerk that was working anyway. She was working overtime, and she agreed to get us a license. And uh, we said, well, we need somebody to marry us. And uh, she said, well, you know, the judge, the justice of the peace is in one of the saloons. Just walk up and down, and you'll find him in one of them. And we found him, and uh, we said, well, you, could you marry us? And he said, yeah. He said, go down to the Silver Queen Saloon. There's a little wedding chapel there, and I'll meet you there in a, in a few minutes. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. We got married, and it just felt like it, it was hard to believe. He said, you know, once we said our vows, it took about five minutes, he said, well, you'll get the certificate in the mail. And we did. 
and then we were officially married. But it was Veterans Day in November 11th, 1974, 1974. not Valentine's Day. So there you go. You, let me remind people, we're talking with Tony Tennille. She has written a book. It's brand new. She's in the second printing already. Tony Tennille, a memoir. And what is a joy for our audience is that no, not only is it in print, but it's in audio. And you can check barnesandnoble.com. You can check amazon.com. And as Tony said, check your library. And that's a great suggestion. Thank you. We, we, Never, we always forget the library. Well, and you I know, just, and not everybody has the money to go out and buy a book. Um, that's true. But, and and that's if it's true. not, I'll tell you right now, if it's not in your library now, um, because, you know, I think they were kind of uh, shocked that they had to go into a second printing so fast, um, but <laughs> it will be soon. And all you have to do is talk to your librarian and say, this is a book I'd really like to, to read, and, and they'll, they'll get it in. It may not be there right now, but it will be pretty soon. Yeah. Tony, I, I know that we've got some time constraints, and I've got a thousand. I'm only on page two. <laughs> well, I can um, go with you for a few more minutes there. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. I, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your marriage, which was a yeah. very unusual situation, and you made a choice in 2015. Well, actually, I 14, made 14, actually. 2013, 14. 14. Uh, actually, what happened was um, I had, you know, I was raised in a very, very loving family. Uh, you know, no matter what trials and tribulations we went through, we all loved each other. I have three wonderful sisters who are all accomplished women uh, of whom I'm very proud, and we all support each other through whatever we go through. Daryl was raised quite differ- differently. His father was a very, very famous at that time symphony conductor, arranger, Academy Award winner uh, for scoring scoring of Cover Girl with Rita Hayworth. Uh, he conducted all over the world, uh, but he was very, very hard on his kids, and from very critical, critical all the time of all of them, the three boys and the two girls. And uh, what, from what I could see when I was around the family, uh, there was no affection shown. Uh, Daryl's mother, of course, adored him and, and his siblings, but she suffered from uh, a deep depression and, uh, and for the last probably 20 years of her life. Um, she was not emotionally available to, to the kids. So <clears throat> uh, he just was raised differently. He had no, he was, he had no experience of loving and being loved openly and giving, giving and receiving love. So, of course, me, I thought, I can fix this. You know, this is a brilliant man. He's a genius in many ways. And I just thought I can bring him out so that he can experience, you know, joy, musical joy, the great thrill that I feel when I'm writing or singing or listening uh, to music, and I thought I could, you know, open up his heart. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And finally, after, you know, many years, I realized it was not going to happen. And then I had to try to figure out what I was going to do about it. And about that time, a little before that time, actually, um, we decided to move to Prescott, Arizona. 
and I decided to retire uh, from performing and uh, just drop out of sight. That was my decision. I thought um, I could just live a kind of a normal life, uh, keep myself under the radar. I didn't do any national interviews the entire eight years I lived there. Um, because I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about my marriage. Um, I, I, I still adored Daryl, but I couldn't, I was just, it was like beating your head up against a, 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 a wall. I was just getting nowhere, and it was bringing me down. I was, I've always been a positive person, and I felt myself going into the negativity that Daryl always uh Exuded. That was his life. He was a negative person, and I felt myself going down with him. And when I dared to think of what my life would be like if I stayed with him, I just saw myself becoming an old, old, bitter woman, and uh, I didn't like that. I didn't want that. So um, I got a lot of help in making the decision that to, that I needed to make to 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 leave him eventually from my family always supportive I had great I have great women friends over the years that I trust uh, that I've known for a long time uh, several of them in Prescott I call them my council of wise women and mm-hmm. we would often come to each other and you know and, and talk and talk things out they were a big help and then there was a fabulous uh, therapist there in Prescott that I w- went to see for Uh, many months before I finally made my decision but Mm -hmm. one of the things she she said to me one day that really just um, opened my eyes and made me know it was it was time she said Tony why you know what you want to do why are you not doing it and I said Gudrun I said I am really worried about how devastated some of our fans will be because they have always thought of us as the perfect couple and we could prove we proved that love could conquer all and all that kind of thing and I said I just 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 I it just hurts me to have to admit that I, I we couldn't do that and she said to me Tony she said this is your life it's not their life Yes, there are a lot of them that will be very disappointed and even sad, some maybe even devastated, but they will go on with their lives, and you have a right to go on with yours as you as you want to. You have a right to find your happiness, and that's when I knew that I could do it, and she was right. That's exactly what happened, um, And but, but I do want to say, that Daryl and I have always remained friendly with with each other. I talk to him every week or ten days or so to check on him and see how he's doing because I care about him. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is that I'm finding out that he seems to be doing not only just fine, but maybe even a little better uh, now that I'm not there because he's starting to take steps on his own to do things that I was never able to help him do. So, um, and I'll tell you another thing. When Caroline and I were in New York a, a little over a week ago, week and a half ago, and uh, one of the shows I did was the Today Show. And on the way 
back to the airport, so Caroline and I were going to fly home. I called him to see how he was doing. And he said, well, I just saw you on the Today Show this morning. And I said, you did? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what did you think? And he said, I was proud of you. So, and Caroline could hear it because we were in the back of the car and he could could hear him. And we both just kind of looked at each other and went, oh, what? He's never said that kind of thing to me, ever. Uh, He never said he loved me the whole time we were together. So that was that was a big jump, a big leap for him, and I was so touched by it. Um, so I think he's I think he's going to do just fine. I really do. I think it was kind of a a wake up for him when I finally uh, when I finally left. Yeah, amazing story, just an amazing story. Before you go, oh my gosh, I'm down to page three. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I have that long. We're making progress here. People who listen to us and to li- who listen to the interviews know that I, I show up with 28 pages for people. I love it. I love it. I really do. Well, uh, you've answered many of them along the way, so um, I feel vindicated here a little bit. <laughs> Tell me about the Tony, uh, the Captain and Tennille show. How did that come about? Well, you know, we had guested on uh, a lot of shows, and there were summer mu- summer uh, series, uh, musical series at that time that some people had. And um, uh, John Davidson had one, and we guested on his. And, uh, you know, we did the Carol Burnett show, and we did things like that. And, um, and so we were approached by ABC, uh, Fred Silverman, who was vice president of entertainment there, there at that time, uh, to do a television show of our own. And um, uh, our, our record company, A&M, did not really want us to do that because they thought that if we were seen in everybody's homes um, every week that uh, some of our, I don't know, mystery, not that we had any mystery, uh, but anyway, uh, they thought it would cut into our record sales if people could see us all the time on TV. Uh, but... We thought, I mean, I loved the idea because, you know, my mother had had a talk show when I grew up watching her do her talk show in Alabama uh, back in in the 1950s, and I did theater my whole life. I was very comfortable uh, on stage, uh, but Daryl was not, Um, and the negotiations took quite a while because ABC first wanted us to do 60% comedy skits and 40% music, and I thought, why get us? We're music people, yeah. um, but that's what they wanted. So we, you know, we argued back and forth, and the attorneys did anyway. And we ended up doing they. We agreed to fifty-fifty, which was not our, our ideal, but you know, we'll, we we started there. Um, the problem was Daryl uh, was never comfortable in the front, even when he worked in clubs with his uh, with his brothers, you know, in Malibu before, you know, anybody, you know, before he ever met me, um, he never wanted to be in the front. He was always the guy in the back with all the keyboards, and one of his brothers did all the singing and fronting of the group. Uh, So um, when, you know, when we started working together, that's the way he liked it. I would be the person who talked to the audience, and he would be the keyboard genius, you know, back in the back who did everything. But when we went on television, well, he had to, he had to stand right up there with me. He had to be, you know, uh, Sonny and Cher. He had to be Sonny. 
that was yeah. kind of what was expected. And he was general, genuinely uncomfortable. Um, uh, the the writers, you know, tried their best to figure figure out what to do with Daryl because he had no, you know, no skills or or experience at all of doing any kind of comedy other than other than the things that he just did naturally that were that were kind of funny because they were so offbeat and weird. Um, but eventually they kind of came up with things that, that sort of worked for him. But Daryl was miserable. He, he'd never seen a cue card in his life, much less read one. So, you know, he had to read cue cards. He had to learn lines. Um, he just, he was pretty miserable with it. So although I was enjoying it, it was very hard work, but I was enjoying, you know, all the wonderful guests we had and the songs and the music. Uh, he was not enjoying it. And uh, I, I spent a lot of my energy trying to, you know, keep him positive and up and yeah. going through the whole thing. And it didn't work. No, you know, we we had, well, actually, um, he, halfway through our first season, he, he said, I'm not doing it anymore. And I said, Daryl, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's only halfway through. We have a contract for a year. He said, I, I can't do it anymore. So we flew out to New York uh, to, to, to meet with uh, Fred Silverman and tell him that we wanted off the show because I couldn't do anything about it if Daryl didn't want to do it. I couldn't mm-hmm. do it by myself. Uh, but Fred said, look, he said, um, here's a list of producers. We had had a, a really good producer, but he was old school. You know, he, 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 he brought in a lot of brilliant, famous stars like Jackie Gleason and George Burns and Bob Hope, uh, but um, he, those were kind of the the older school of, of the comedians and guests, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, we kind of wanted more emphasis on music and some of the younger acts that were coming up. So one of the persons on the list that Fred gave us of potential producers for the second half of, show, of the show was Dick Clark, and Daryl and I immediately said, that's who we want because dick had always you know through his american bandstand been kind of the conduit between teenagers and their dubious families who were kind of worried about the music that the teenagers were (laughs) dancing to and you know of course it's nothing compared to what it is now but at that time you know it was considered a lot of it was considered kind of scandalous and risque by the parents um, so Dick would be the perfect one to produce, and he had he knew all the acts, all the up and coming acts, and because of him, we were able to get a lot of great um, of the younger, uh, the current top forty type guests on the show. And Daryl liked that a little bit better, but he was never that happy. Uh, so what we did, we we finished after the first year. He said, "I'm not going to continue anymore," but we did agree to do three specials for ABC, and we did one one a year. Uh, for the next three years. For three years. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to ask you in just a minute about Muskrat Love and Henry Kissinger, but I Dear. can't bypass. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, Tony Tennille Show in 1980. Oh, yeah. How did that come about? And tell me about it. Well, Bob Eubanks, uh, who was, uh, you might remember from the dating game, the, those kinds mm-hmm. of silly things that he had, but he was a wonderful producer, and he approached me about doing my own talk show. And, you know, my mother had had one. I'd watched her all the years. She did it live, half hour, five days a week, on WSFA-TV, the 
NBC affiliate uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, so uh, I thought, well, this will be fun. I'd love to do this. So um, we put together the show, and it was to be syndicated. And syndication, um, when it's not on a network, as you probably know, uh, every station can carry it at a different time. Mm-hmm. And they don't always carry it at the time time that you would wish for them to do. I thought of my show as a like a late afternoon show. Uh, it had lots of music. Um, that, to me, would have been the ideal time, like 4 o'clock, somewhere around in there in the afternoon. But some, you know, now New York, they carried it at that time, and it was a, a really very successful in New York. But then another station would carry it at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then one would carry it at 10 o'clock in the morning, and it yeah. never could find um, its, uh, its audience because it was scattered all over the place. But I will tell you that that show... For the one year that we were on, and I'm telling you, everybody in that cast and crew, the band, everybody loved that show and worked so hard on it. I am proudest of that show than just about anything I ever have done in my career. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't go on uh, longer, uh, but uh, television, daytime television was was changing then. Uh, It was starting to become reality-type shows. And in one of my last shows, uh, the producers brought in a, they wanted me to reunite a couple of adult uh, people with their birth mother who they'd never met right there on television. And I was really uncomfortable with that because I thought of that as something private that should not be out there, you know, for other people to see. But that's just because of the kind of person I am. But I kind of sensed where things were going and then of course it just became the crazy reality things that we have today yeah you are a fabulous interviewer thank you you know i, I learned you mean that a lot of that from and my mom she was great at that well <laughs> maybe she got some of it from you as well but i mean really dynamite and i found the interview that you did with daryl in oh dear not oh dear you know i mean he was a background person, he rarely talked, he was uncomfortable in front of people, and you had a marvelous interview with him. Did you think so? I, you know, I absolutely I, did. I was so nervous interviewing him because, honestly, I never knew what he was going to say or what direction he was going to go in because often he would just go off on some tangent and... That had nothing to do with what I had asked him. So uh, I, I guess it did come out pretty well, but i got to tell you, I could interview the Queen of England and not be as nervous as I was trying to interview him. <laughs> well, it, Tony, it didn't show. Oh. And I knew from having read your book huh. that this was probably an ex- uh, really an extreme challenge for you to do this. It was. And it was, like, just cool. Everything was just cool. He answered your questions. He pondered yeah. the answers. The questions you asked were great. And for anyone who wants to see this, it is up on YouTube. It's Tony Tenille <laughs> interviewing Daryl, or Captain, as yeah. many people know him. And it was the yeah. Tony Tenille show. Um, it really is worth a trip, and I just loved it. So that, well, that is glad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was really, really terrific. <laughs> Tell me about Muskrat 
Love? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, Muskrat Love was written by a guy uh, from Texas named Willis Allen Ramsey. And it had first been recorded by a group called America. And uh, that record came out when Daryl and I were working in clubs. We had, didn't have any hits. We were just, you know, your top 40 band trying to make a living. And used to listen to Top 40 radio all the time to find new, new songs to do. Uh, we were doing Elton John and Carly Simon and Carol King and Billy Joel. And we kept looking for new songs. And we were driving to the club one night, and I was listening, and I went, wait a minute. That song, I was put my ear close to the radio. I said, I think this is a song about muskrats, something about <laughs> muskrats being in love. And I said, Daryl, i got to go find this, this sheet music and see what those lyrics were. So the next day I, I went, and I, at that time you could still buy sheet music in the record store. And we went there and found the sheet music from Muskrat Love. I started reading it, and I started laughing out loud. I said, this is hysterically funny. Why don't we work up a little, you know, work up an arrangement and try it out in the club? We were working in the smokehouse that time in, at the San, in the San Fernando Valley and um, in Encino. And um, so we did. We worked up the, the arrangement, and Daryl, you know, created the muskrat voices, and we tried it out in the club, and people went nuts for it. Um, they, they, I mean, we could have done it six, seven times a night if we'd wanted to. But I, I finally said, look, to the audience, we're going to do it once early in the evening, and we're going to do it again later in the evening, and that's it, twice a night. So we knew it was really popular. People got a kick out of it. And we ended up putting it on, I think it was our second album. I think it was our second album. Because I said, you know, Daryl, people, people enjoyed this so much in the club. Let's just put it on the album and see what happens. Uh, so to make a long story short, I can't, it's just going to take a long time to go into it. It became the third biggest selling hit single we ever had. And uh, left after that, uh, we had two hits at the time off that album. We had, uh, no, at our first album, we had Love Will Keep Us Together and The Way I Want to Touch You. So those were the only two hits we had. But we were invited to uh, perform at the White House uh, by President and Mrs. Mrs. Ford along with Bob Hope uh, for the bicentennial celebration. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip would be there and uh, the Prime Minister and his wife and all kinds of dignitaries. And uh, so we were pretty excited about it, but worried about what songs we should do because, like I said, we only had two hits that anybody would know. Uh, we had, you know, an album out, but uh, the hits, and, and I thought, well, you know, Love Will Keep Together, that's good for the White House. And I thought, but, you know, the way I want to touch you might be just a little risque, maybe, for the White House. Uh, so I was pondering what to do when um, Mrs. Ford walked into our sound check. What a lovely lady she was. She was just, she kind of glowed. I remember she was wearing this lovely yellow linen suit, and she just looked wonderful. And she came over to chat with me, and she said, well, what are you going to play tonight? And I said, well, we're thinking, of course, we'll do Love Will Keep Us Together. And she said, well, you're going to do the way I want to touch you, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, and I kind of stumbled around a little bit, and she said, but you must. That's Jerry and mine's favorite song. And I went, okay. Oh. <laughs> so I said, well, of course, 
we'll be happy to do it for you. So I went back and I, you know, I told the band, I said, hey, we're going to do the way I want to touch you. She, she, Mrs. Ford requested it. So then I thought, I said, well, you know, that, they, they sound pretty hip around this White House. Why don't we throw in muskrat love? I mean, you know, muskrat love in White House, smokehouse, what difference? They're all just people. So naturally, it didn't go quite as I thought because when I was singing, the, the East Room is where we were. It's a very small room. It's mostly suited for acoustic performances, you know, like a, an opera singer with a piano or maybe a jazz trio. And here we were with all our speakers and everything turned down to zero, thanks to the Secret Service. But anyway, so I'm, I'm playing along, uh, and it, the front row, just eight feet in front of me, uh, right in front of me where I sat at, the, at my keyboard. Um, and there was Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, and there was the Prime Minister and his wife, and there was Henry and Nancy Kissinger, and there I was. And I started singing Muskrat Love, and um, I started, I took a look at the look on Dr. Kissinger's face, and I knew I was in trouble, because he was not amused, and uh, he made it very evident that he couldn't wait to get out of there. And in the meantime, I'm trying to keep playing and smiling and thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? Uh, and anyway, we, we did, I got through the song, and, you know, when Daryl played those muskrat sounds, Dr. Kissinger just looked like he couldn't, he wanted to be anywhere but where he was. But <laughs> as soon as we, we finished the song and, uh, you know, uh, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth, you know, came to say hello and President and Mrs. Ford, and I never saw Henry Kissinger again. He was out of that room so fast, I never saw him leave. But I got, I got, I got my, uh, my, my uh, revenge on him, you could say, because after that, for the rest of my life, every time I performed Muskrat Love, I dedicated it to Henry Kissinger. So <laughs> I don't think he even knows of, of the relationship between him and the Muskrats, but uh, okay. it's kind of interesting to think about it. I, I hope someone has told him along the way. <laughs> I do too, but I'm, he was just—he was just—I could tell he just couldn't stand it. But that's okay. Fussy, fussy, fussy. I know. Come on, get a life. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. I have one more question, and I have overstayed our welcome, and I apologize for that. What is your one more? I can't believe there's anything else in my life we don't know already. Oh, Tony. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. I want you to tell me, please, the the most memorable song for your listeners, for you, for Daryl, for anybody. What is the one that comes when I ask that? Well, you know, it depends on what part of my life and my relationship with Daryl um, that, I mean, because I love all of our songs. I really do. And, and the ones I wrote, I wrote many for Daryl, not just the two that, that were hit singles, but many, many others um, expressing kind of my longing and my yearning for him that I could never fulfill. But um, probably the first one that I wrote for him ever, The Way I Want to Touch You, um, if you listen to that and, and you've read the book and you know my story, um, you will kind of feel what I was feeling during that time. Yes. 
And I can understand that one. You're in Florida now. You are no longer in Prescott. You are no longer anywhere else, but you're ours. That's right. I'm yours, and I'm my sister Jane's. I'm just an hour, an hour, a mile and a half from her. We can walk to each other's houses. So uh, we're having a wonderful time. And my co-author and niece Caroline just lives 20 minutes away in, in Orlando. So she and I are getting ready to head to Los Angeles on Tuesday for five more days of media. So, oh. Wow. <laughs> well, that is so cool. We have been talking with Tony Tenniel. She is the author, along with her niece, Carolyn. Carolyn or Caroline? Am I Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Caroline. Okay, thank you. Um, Tony Tenniel, a memoir. And you can find it at Amazon.com. You can find it at BarnesandNoble.com. You can probably find it in their brick-and-mortar store as well. And watch for it in your library. It's going to be popping up all over the place. And it really was a great read. It, it kind of took my breath away in a couple of places, Tony, I have to tell you that. Thank but, you very um, much. I think, I think it was meant to because you shared so much of yourself. So that's it. Tony, I thank you so much for spending so much time with us and sharing so much of yourself. And thank you to your sister Jane because I know the two of you are you just feed off each other. You are synergy. We're very close. My whole family is very close, but Jane and I have lived, five, let's say, 3,000 miles apart for most of our lives, for 50 years, actually. So now it's time that she and I are close together. So that's what we're doing now, and we're loving I'm, it. I'm, I'm so delighted to hear that. Tony, thank you so much for spending time with us, and have a wonderful life. Yes, you too. And and Walden, I don't know if he's still there. I am. Oh, and thank you, Walden. Oh, Just been a joy. Thank you so much, and we'll get the radio shows out to you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right, Tony.